Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. The Australian Open is over. Some major takeaways from the first major were Andy Murray declaring his imminent retirement. Milos Raonic and Luka Pui declaring that they are back. Danielle Collins busting onto the scene in a big way. And Stefano Tsitsipas showing the world that he may have champion DNA. Serena played hard but went out in another exhilarating and truly bizarre match. Naomi Osaka has now won the last two majors. Novak and Rafa continued their global domination. And then Novak beat Rafa in a scene normally reserved for Game of Thrones. But we stepped away from watching the Australian Open to interview a guy who won it. He was seven in the world and posted wins over Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Jimmy Connors, and Yvonne Lendl, to name a few. As a coach, he worked with Agassi for a second and helped Greg Ruzeski get to four in the world. The one and only Brian Teacher is going to tell us about what it's like to hang it up early with a debilitating injury and what he thinks Andy Murray might be going through. He's going to tell us about an app that will bring international coaching into the 21st century and tell us how hearing the words, I want a divorce, could be a blessing in disguise. We met up with Brian Courtside in the shade of an oak tree in the basin of the Arroyo Seco near his home in Pasadena. We're at the Arroyo Seco Tennis Club facility. What is this? I guess that's what you could say, Arroyo Seco Tennis Club. And uh, this is South Pasadena? Yes. And uh, the, the other gentleman you hear is uh, none other than our first Grand Slam champion, Brian Teacher. Uh, my man, thank you. For... Well, first of all, I have to say Dick Savitt would definitely disagree with you because I won a major, but it's not a Grand Slam. A Grand Slam, you have to win all four major Slam, titles. Well, you won a major. Major, there you we go. You won a major, you can't say Grand Slam. Yeah. That's correct. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. Dick is a real stickler, and he just reminded me of no, that. No, no, so. I think that I'm, I generally think we are, too. We're sticklers. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, our paths crossed once. Um, you were coaching Greg Ruzetsky, and I was working for the people that were doing his rackets. That's and, right. And uh, Greg Ruzetsky, he was a Canadian Englishman. He had this bizarre <laughs> background, right? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it was so bizarre. His dad worked for the railroad, and uh, they were in uh, in Montreal. And uh, I think his mom was uh, had some English roots, and so. Uh, but he was a kid who grew up in Canada, and as a result of his tennis prowess, he wanted to line up with the LTA. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, who's who's got a richer organization, uh, the Canadian or the the British? I mean, it's it's hands down, right? Is that right? The British. Well, yeah, I mean, look at Wimbledon. And yeah. I mean, that's just like the USTA is behind the US Open. The, the British Lawn Tennis is behind Wimbledon. You guys, so. you guys carved a nice team at that one moment in time. Exactly. For one moment in time, yeah, we, we did well. So in order to keep things moving and cover a wide assortment of subjects and topics, we use a five-set format. This is our off-the-court report. Okay. Okay, I brought some extra shoes and uh, shirts to change in that five-step format, all right? Yeah, if, if you feel like you get disheveled, you can swap out. All right. Now, generally speaking, this is where we learn about what you're up to. Well, the last, uh, since like uh, middle of October, it's been very trying time for uh, for my family. My I have two daughters. One is uh, uh, 31, and uh, Marion has a, a, a little girl, and then the younger daughter is 28, and my older daughter, 
Um, she, she had a, um, a rare form of cancer. She had a mixed germ cell uh, ovarian cancer and um, she had a surgery, I think in 2017 at the end and then did chemotherapy and we thought we had a cure. And then this last October, uh, she had an, a very aggressive reoccurrence that cancer actually mutated. It's a very difficult cancer called PNET. She's undergoing, she just came home yesterday. It's a fourth round of chemo. So, you know, we have the, the little baby is 19 months and we're, you know, a good deal of our energy is geared around trying to, to get her well and get a cure basically, so. Where's your head at? How are you handling the situation? Well, as a family, we're, we're a very tight family. Uh, my wife is pretty much 24 seven with my daughter and the baby, and I'm, I'm right there you know, with her. Uh, we're trying to stay above water, really, and just kind of focus our best on trying to get a cure for my daughter and get her well. That's really where all our energy and love is going into. That's excruciating, man. Uh, yeah, it's actually beyond excruciating. You can't even imagine what it's like. Um, and so just deal with it with the best we can. That's, that's it, you know. That's, that's my main preoccupation. And then whatever time I can fit in in the last four months, I've been working on a coaching app for the last couple of years. Well, hold on I, a second. Um, okay. Thank you for being so forthcoming with that. We had heard that information and, you know, we talk about a lot of things on this show and we are, want to thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so this app, how does this app work? Uh, basically, you can take a video with your phone and you, it downloads it so you can move it back and forth and then you can draw graphics on. So is it like a telestrator? No, not like a telestrator. It's called, you can annotate the video. So you can digitally manipulate the video. You can voice over and you can actually push a button and compare it to another image. So, you know, it has all those aspects. And then on the system, you can look up a coach's profile, you know, where he's from, what he's done in his career. And you could actually hire the, the coach and once you hire the coach, of course, you have to pay him whatever his fee is, and then you have a private space to be able to send him video and actually get a virtual lesson. And you can communicate back and forth. You could be in China, I could be in LA, and you know we have this private space, and you can send me video, and I can analyze it and send it back. Well, you can get that from world-class pros. That's the hope, is to have top coaches on there. You know, I've used the technology and I do a lot of remote coaching now and, and it works and, and you can get some amazing results with just virtual coaching. We need that. Scotty, you need that, 100%, you need that. And then, you, and then once you're done with the lesson, you can review, you know, you can review the coach and his review will show up on the profile. You know, everything can be sent to social media. That's cool. How is it that you're the forward thinker on this one? Like, how is it that you're still got your nose to the grind on something like this? Because I was, I was playing around with the technology in my coaching, and I found that it was an amazing tool, and I didn't like the format, so I thought it could be presented in a much better format. I didn't realize all, all the time and energy to actually set it up and, and, and do it in it's the format. Work. Oh my gosh, it's, it's endless. Um, are you actually on the court anymore? I, I do some coaching, yeah. I do a little bit of coaching here and there, yeah. Here? Here, and, and sometimes I travel a little bit. Not a lot, but I do. Now listen, we saw you at, uh, I believe it was at a Taylor Fritz match. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, that yeah. That was at the Tarango Club, at the Kramer. Jack oh, yeah, Kramer. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, went to actually see uh, Sam Query 
Sam agreed to be on my app, so I actually filmed Sam. And, and oh, you did? Yeah. You were doing some business over there. Because I was going to ask you if you had a relationship with Taylor. I mean, you were married to Taylor's mom. At one point, yes. Yes, absolutely. Do you have a relationship with Taylor Fritz? No, just to say hi and, you know, how are you doing and whatever. I was, you know, I'm very good friends with the dad as well because we, we grew up in San Diego to the other guy. Guy Fritz. We're going to get into the San Diego tennis scene in our third set. This is our second set. We call this the On the Court Report. What are your thoughts about pro tennis moving into the 2019 season? Let's start with the women. What do you think is interesting? Well, you know what? I have not been following the women much at all. I mean, I was I was impressed with Osaka. You know, there's always a lot of young girls, you know, coming out of nowhere that are winning. It seems almost more so than in the men. You're floating around Southern California somewhat. Do you have any, has anyone told you anything interesting about any women that, you know, maybe we should keep an eye out for? No. 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 I, I've been working a little bit with, uh, you know, and consulting a little bit with uh, Brandon Nakashima, who you know, just won the 18 Masters in China, and, and he's, right now, he should be at Virginia, so he's going to Virginia Tech. So I think he's a, he's a good good player. Brandon Nakashima. Yeah, yeah, he's got some talent. And how does someone like Brandon Nakashima find you? You know, I don't know. You'd have to ask the parents. I don't know how they found me. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in Southern Cal. I don't know. Talking to people, I guess. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any interesting thoughts about the men at the moment? Is there anything that you think is... Uh... No, I mean, it's always fascinating. I love watching all these the, the these majors. And just like the thing you see with, with, with Andy Murray, you never know when, when somebody just can get injured like that, and especially in this day and age where every match is just grueling and very physical. And Let me ask you this. How do you teach tennis in 2019? I mean, the game doesn't look anything like the game you guys were playing. No, I mean, the 100% true. I mean, I wouldn't say it doesn't look anything. I mean, obviously, the, the rackets have evolved. The strokes have evolved somewhat. Uh, but, you know, we kind of at least were in the transition period. I was anyway, where, you know, I, I won the Australian Open with the mid-sized graphite, you know, that I stuff. Can... But it's a lot more physical, and they're hitting the ball a lot harder with a lot more spin. Obviously, the technology has helped a lot, but the, but the players are definitely fitter and stronger and more athletic. There's no question on the whole. Is there anyone that you love to watch play? Oh, I mean, I love to watch Djokovic when he's, you know, when he's zoning. He's kind of, he's pretty amazing to watch. I mean, it's almost like you're watching a software game that this guy is just like seeing everything so early, you know, the moves ahead of time and, and, and he's so right on it. He, he's just amazing to watch and how his focus is. What's your take on this Andy Murray situation? What can you say about what's happened? Well, I, you know, uh, it's just, it's just unfortunate. You know, everybody's body is different, and, and tennis is such a demanding physical sport. You know, it's, it's pretty much you're training all day long. You're jumping up and down and turning and stopping, twisting on hard surfaces, and it's, and it's very hard on your joints, and not everybody's body can do that. Eventually, eventually your body's going to break down. Uh, you know, some, some players sooner than others, you know, depending on your genetics. And unfortunately, you know, Andy is incredibly hard-working guy, I mean, always incredibly fit. Do you know him? No, I don't know him personally. You don't? No. You've never spoken to him? Maybe to say hi once Maybe or Maybe to something. say hi. Yeah, yeah, that's about it. You don't know him? No. And, and do you think that maybe, like, I don't think he should even play his, like, he's, he's continuing to play, like, it's, 
Like watching him play is hard. To I, I, I hadn't I hadn't watched him. He's actually limping and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like it's it's hard to let go. I mean, this is what I tell you when I you know when I stopped playing and I always thought you know I was gonna oh you know I'm gonna get better and heal up and this or that. But you know you have dreams every when you wake up in the morning you think you're going out to the court you have dreams that you're you're gonna go play tennis and you're gonna go play a match and you can't do it and it's hard to let it go. It's just it's part of your identity, part of your existence, and it's. It's almost impossible. It's all in your psyche and everything. By the way, Andy Murray's having a tough time letting it go. Well, yeah, because this is his life. I mean, you don't get to be one in the world unless it's all or it's it's everything about yourself and your life. That's what who you are. How do you how do you just let it go? It's really tough, you know. In a sense, you know, he's waking up and it's like you know, hey, this is a different reality now. It's not the reality that I thought my life was. Got to be very. That's hard. To, that's hard to change gears like that. That's tough to process. Very tough. It's all your psyche, your subconscious, everything. This is our third set. This is the portion of the show where we discuss your career. Um, you came out of San Diego, and that, at that moment in time when you were coming up, that was a little bit of a hotbed in tennis. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up at the uh, public facility Morley Field, and, you know, the majority of uh, tennis uh, was out of that public uh, parks down there. And we had a lot of kids. You know, you could just show up down there in the, in the 60s after school and just get a good game. You, you wouldn't even really have to make games. You would just show up, and there would be guys all over the place, you know, to play with. And, you know, there were a lot of guys that got scholarships to college. You know, probably 15 to 20 guys within a four-year period that played out of there that got scholarships to colleges. You were a top player at UCLA. It seems to me at that moment in time, UCLA, USC, Cal, all these schools were really like feeders into the pros. You know, you know, pro tennis was really just in its infancy. And in so I went to UCLA in 72 and, uh, you know, 68 was the U.S. Open. That was the first open major tournament. There was, you know, uh, Ash beat Ocker won 14,000 bucks to win, to win the event. 14 grand. Yeah, that was it. And so I started school at UCLA at 72. So, you know, you, not Did you see like Bill Walton on the campus? Yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. They were undefeated that year and they the ended games? up, they ended up losing. Yeah, of course. I mean, I love what they that were. That must have been were, an incredible experience. Oh, they were fun to watch. I mean, they were incredible. Just they to were, be on UCLA campus at that time. They were like, like a well-oiled machine watching them play. I mean, they were just amazing. You, do you see like Coach Wooden on campus? I wouldn't see him on campus. I'd see him at the game. At the so, game. Right? Yeah, like, we, we used to watch every game. If we weren't attending the game, we'd be on TV watching it. They were, they were just fun to watch. Did you improve in college? Were you? A- yeah, I did. I improved a lot in college because of the competition. You know, we had a good team, and and LA was like kind of a hotbed for the pro players. Uh, so like Connors would pass through. There was always a bunch of you know top pros that were Broviak, Broviak, Rahim, who played at UCLA before, were in town. Those guys would be there. That was a yeah, hot- yeah. There was a lot of guys at that time. You know, and probably for the next. 10, 15 years, L.A. was amazing. Now, um, I was told that next to Borg and, like, Vilas, that you were just, like, a wild practicer. You practiced incredible amounts. I played probably too much, probably practiced neurotically. It's probably my Jewish neuroses inside me of just, like, you know, overdoing the tennis. If I was looking back, I wouldn't do it as much and probably do more cross-training. 
What kind of practicing would you, I mean, what's an example of what you what, what you were doing? Oh, I just, you know, it was just too much. It was four to five hours a day, typically on the court. It was just too much wear and tear. It's just, this surface is just too hard on your body. And, you know, when we started, you know, in, in the 60s, there was no even art supports in your shoes. You guys were playing canvas shoes. Yeah, and so, you know, and then people wise up and understand, hey, you know, you guys shouldn't be doing this all day long, you know, just, I got into yoga early on because I had back problems when I was 19 at UCLA. So I needed to, I was really stiff and I needed to start, you know, doing some stretching exercise. So I got into Hatha yoga and I think that helped me prolong my career because I already had like arthritis at age 19 in my neck and my spine and stuff. And no, I, you know, we saw on, on the internet that at some point you seem like you're moving pretty well to me, man, but it seemed at some point you had debilitating arthritis. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, if I was like 36 when I knew I was gonna have to have a hip replacement. That was like not fun. So you did that? You did that surgery? I didn't, I waited for like, you know, probably too long, you probably like 15 it. years, because I was afraid that, okay, you do it once and then it's gonna wear out. And if, in a sense, it was probably good because, you know, they ended up improving the material, especially the plastics, which used to wear out. Now they're, they're pretty strong, the plastic and the prosthesis. How would you describe your professional career? Uh, probably just up and down. You know, a lot of injuries like, like you mentioned and just, you know, I got to be in the top 10. I think my highest ranking in singles was seven and in doubles. So like, 16, I think. No, my doubles ranking, they screwed up that ATP thing. I had an argument in the fight with them. I was actually as high as five. <laughs> and then I saw they had me at 22. If you look now, it says, I think I'm six. with six in doubles. Oh, is that right? They adjusted yeah. it? Well, the records were so bad. I right. called them up, I said, I said, you know, I said, that 22, you're just so far off the mark. I said, if you guys, you guys need to look it up. And they said, well, we don't have records to look it up. I said, how do you have me at 22 if you don't have records to put me at 22? I said, if you don't have records, then just eliminate me because you're just off. It's just not right. You think they figured it, they got a little bit and better. And so, no, actually, so they, these guys, they, they finally contacted Weller Evans, Weller who, Evans, you know, who was, on, who was our player rep for 50 years. Weller Evans, long time player Yeah, great rep. guy, great After guy. the ATP, you hear that name a lot, Weller Evans. Uh, so, shout out to Weller Evans. So, so Weller, when he had time, he, I guess they have all the boxes of the results. So he went back and looked through so all Weller the, hammered through the box scores? He says, look, he says, I can't find where you were, where you reached five, but I can find where you reached six. And I said, Okay, Weller. Okay, that's close enough. Give me six. All right, all right, yeah. So that's what he put it in. Um, yeah. Listen, man, you're a top 10 player in the world. That's incredible. Um, you got to tell us about your greatest run. My greatest run? Where, where, I won the, where I won the Australian Open? Yeah, set the scene for us. Sure. So uh, I'd been, uh, in fact, I was, I was married at the time to Taylor's mom, Kathy. And Kathy May, she was uh, seven in the world, correct, at some point? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. I know she was in the top ten. I'm not, I can't remember to be perfectly honest. But she was a good player. Yeah, obviously, sure, sure. And then anyway, so uh, I'd been, you know, I, I'd had a pretty good run. I'd gotten to either four or five finals in '79. You no, that was '80. So in '80, leading up to the Australian Open, I'd been in about I don't know four finals. You were playing good tennis. Yeah, I was playing good tennis. I had. Lendl, Lendl was just, you know, up and coming, and I think he was already maybe in the top 10. I'd, I'd actually, you know, had a good match in the finals in Hong Kong. I was up a set in 4-2 and 15-4, had a surfer double break, and 
I ended up losing that game and then I ended up losing the match. Uh, and then we went down to Australia and I lost in the finals to Fritz Buni and I had match points and lost a tiebreaker. I think there was still the nine point tiebreaker. We're at out in Adelaide. In Sydney. And then, uh, and that was a couple of days before the Australian Open. You know, I was pretty discouraged then and I know Kathy was at home and uh, I called, you know, to say I lost again in the finals and, and she, the first words out of her mouth were that she wanted a divorce. Well, you, you lost the match. Your wife said, I want a divorce. Yeah, that was the first words out of her mouth. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was in Australia. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I mean, that's tragic. Yeah, well, it's easy. Yeah, in hindsight, you can laugh, right? Yeah. It's like two weeks before, you know, she was saying, ah, I would like to have kids and uh, let's look to move. And I'm saying, I was scratching my head and thinking, what's going on here? So. I said, you know, I don't. So she was all in two weeks before. I don't know. That's that. That's that. That's my recollection, anyway. But but I knew we were having issues anyway. But you know, who knew what was happening anyway? So, the reality of it, it was that I I ended up thinking I'm not going to be able to focus very well and play the Australian Open. So I called Colin Stubbs, who was the tournament director, and I said, Colin, um, my I hurt my back. You know, I didn't want to say it was for personal reasons. I hurt my back in the finals and. I need to pull out an Australian Open. And he said, oh, Brian, I'm sorry about that, so sorry. And so I packed all my bags. I was at King's Cross. I remember the hotel, it was in Sydney. I was at King's Cross. I was waiting for, you know, I had like about another 20 to 30 minutes, I was gonna grab a cab and go to the airport. <coughs> and I, and uh, right in that time period, uh, I got a call from David May, who was Kathy's father. And he said, uh, Brian, he says, yeah, she says, uh, I know there's some things going on. Uh, it's not gonna do you any good to come home right now. The reality of it is uh, if, if you don't feel like playing, why don't you go to Hawaii and just take a break? And he said, but don't come home. It's not gonna do you any good. And um, I thought about it and I thought about going to Hawaii. And then I said, you know, I said, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun going to Hawaii sitting on a beach by myself. <laughs> I, said, I said, you know what? I'd rather, I'd probably rather just you know, suffer and try to play tennis, right, than do that one. I think I might just jump off a bridge in Hawaii by myself, right? You're gonna go kill yourself in the honeymoon capital. At least I could have a couple beers with the boys or something, right, you know? So anyway, so. So you stick in, you stick so, in. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I called up Colin about, you know, an hour, two hours after I pulled out, and I said, you know, Colin, I said, uh, guess what, I said, you know, I. I went up to King's Cross and I went to an acupuncturist for my back and I'm feeling pretty good. Is there any way I can- So you kept lying about the injury? It wasn't <laughs> lying. It was a white little fib. Right, right. right. okay. you, you kept like the injury uh, <laughs> yeah. theme. Yeah, it wasn't like I was- You, you didn't know. want to admit the- uh, It wasn't real. There wasn't right. really any reason to divulge the whole thing at that right, time, right? right? It, didn't make, it didn't make a difference. So anyway, right. so he said, I just, by the way, he says, I just gave your spot out to a lucky loser, yeah, and uh, so I really, I can't put you in, and he says, let me look, and he says, you know what, he says, I see here that it looks like somebody else has an injury, might be pulling out, you know, I'm really not supposed to do this, Brian. <laughs> he says, let me check, and I'll call you back, so, you know, in like 15 minutes, he calls me back and says, you know what, this guy's out, I'm gonna put you in, he says, but you know what, you can't breathe a word of this to the ATP. You can't tell anybody. No, because it's against. You can't it, pull out and go back it in. It was against the rules. So, right. and we don't know who that other lucky loser is who might have gotten in. Now, you know, 
So anyway, so he puts me back in and, you know, I end up like, you know, struggling a little bit in the early rounds. And then I started, you know, getting a little more me- did momentum. Know, did you have like anger in your heart or like where was your head at? I didn't have anger in my heart. No, I had just like, like let's try to do well in this event. And were you, one, one were, match were at a dis- time. Were you despondent or like you just kind of put, just put your head down and just got focused into your tennis? You know, if I thought about it, I mean, of course, anybody would be despondent saying, hey, by the way, you know, your wife just dumped you, you know, or whatever. (laughs) She just took a, you know what, on you. But, you know, I mean, I think that anybody would get a little despondent. But, you know, it was like, it was like meant to happen. And it ended up being a good thing that it happened, not a bad thing, you know. But But at the time, going through it, you have to kind of, yeah, if you're thinking about it. You know, of course, you know, you you have to, it's like a tennis match. You gotta, you gotta kind of focus on what's happening. So you gotta try to get, somehow get your head out of that and get into what's going on. Can you recall who you beat in each, each round? Uh, not, no, not really. I remember, uh, John Austin and I remember, uh, I think it was Chris Mayotte. John Austin. You know, yeah. The John Austin's the brother of Tracy Austin. Yeah. Yeah, you be you be Chris Mayotte, uh, the brother of uh, Tim Mayotte. I think yeah, and then there. But I remember the last three matches I played were all Australians, so it was like um, just wiped them out. It was uh, McNamee, McNamara, Paul McNamee, and, and Kim Warwick who beat Velas around before. Yeah, Kim Warwick beat Velas in the semi. I think that I, yeah, yes. And you beat Kim Warwick in straights. Yeah. You must have been playing very good tennis, man. I, yeah, I was playing. I was playing well. I was playing well. Absolutely. You got to take us home now. You win. So what? How you won the tournament? When was it? Were you? I was. I was elated. I was very elated. Obviously, winning the tournament, and then I came home, and uh, and and the situation at home was trying to figure out what was going on with the home life, and you know, it just it wasn't good. I tried to stick it out for a few weeks to see what was happening and and it was it was uh it just wasn't good it wasn't a good vibe it was like it was bizarre and uh you know i ended up basically moving out and and uh you know she ends up getting you know remarried to a guy that basically she was looked like she was going out with when i was uh married to her so that's that was the reality of it which is fine. And that's I, a, I mean, that's a crazy thing to come home to after you won the Australian Open, man. Yeah, I look at it like I was lucky. You, you know, lucked out. I look at it like it, like I lucked out. It wasn't meant to be, and, and right. uh, my life has been good, and hopefully her life has been good too. What um, what clothes did you wear when you were a player? Oh, I think, man, I think at that time it was like. After the Australian, I think I was wearing pony clothes and shoes. Pony. Yeah. And I've only seen Jimmy Arias wear pony. Well, that's probably around the same time that we were, that I was wearing pony. <laughs> and what about your racket? What racket did you play well, with? Well, I was played with that. I, I was the first guy to play with uh, uh, a mid-sized racket. I think I think uh, there was the Prince, and then all of a sudden I couldn't. I didn't really like the Prince, and so that the company, uh, Kenex, that made, Kenex. it was called Kun and Lo, uh, made made the Prince rackets in Taiwan and they made this mid-sized racket and I kind of liked it. A special racket? Or no, was it, it was, no, it's called Kenex. It was a black, it's called the Black Ace. Do you have any left? I have like one. Yeah. One? Yeah. What'd you do with the racket you won the Aussie Open with? Boy, I don't know, it's long gone. That's all I could say. I didn't even think about it. 
It's probably a stupid thing looking back, yeah. He could have kept it. Absolutely. Throw it on the wall. Absolutely. It would have been nice, but I wasn't that smart back then. <laughs> well, plus you had some different things happening. Yeah. Really, you had no wall to put it on, if you think about it. You were uh, you're getting tossed. Yeah. What are some of your greatest wins um, in your mind? In my mind? Uh, yeah, I, let's see. I beat Connors uh, Where at? a couple times. I beat him in uh, Japan. In Seiko and in um, the Cow Palace. Cow Palace, yeah. San Fran. And uh, you know, I ended up beating Lendl uh, early on in his career. After I lost to him in uh, in Hong Kong in the finals, I beat him in Thailand once. But he probably beat me ten times. And I beat him once. Do but, you ever play Arthur Ashe? Yeah, I beat Ashe in my first uh, event. I mean, there was a big age. There's a pretty big age difference, but I beat Ashe and. Uh, 70, I think it was 79, which I got the my first finals, which I beat I beat Connors there at that tournament too. Do you, um, did you know Arthur Ashe? N you know, I'd know him to say hi and talk to him, but not, you know, not like- Not significantly. No, we, yeah. you know, there was a big age difference. Who were you, who'd you pal around with when you were playing? Oh boy. You know, I, I, I was pretty much friendly with everybody, but I think, you know, mostly my American buddies, like Trey and, Russell Simpson and Demir Karatich it was a great Demir friend of mine. Demir uh, Drew Gitlin, Lloyd Bourne, mostly you know guys from LA. You know. So so when you finished up, did you basically tap out due to injury? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, so how does that happen? You just start losing. You feel. You, you just every, every. You know, I I had it was not one thing because I had torn ligaments in my ankle. Uh, a bunch of times where I'd been out for like you know eight or nine months, and we didn't we didn't have any injury rule that they have in the last twenty years. Like so, if you were out for an injury, it's just like tough luck, buddy. Just come back in the qualifying. That's it. That's there's it. No, there's no protected ranking. Nothing. 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 You're out. You're you're just you have to That's start. That's a long way to climb. You have to start back. over, man. So I had to do that, you know, uh, one time, and then I and actually I had to do it twice. Basically, it's it's hard. And in the last one, my, you know, my, I had Achilles surgery. You know, you, you start screwing around with tendon, biggest tendon, one of the biggest tendons in your body, and it's not that easy to heal. They're, they just don't heal like muscle and stuff. So that one I actually stopped because I just couldn't heal, and I was just having problems with that one. And then it's one thing and another. You know, it's just like, one, you know, you just reach an age where everything starts breaking down and you just can't do the wear and tear can't handle you know it. like 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 murray says okay you know i hip but then my back and it's because you know if something's a little off balance that area is sore and then you start compensating for something else and it's just one thing after another um you end your career you had to keep working what happens to you next first of all i was so sick of traveling so i just like i couldn't even get on a plane without thinking i was going to vomit so i i took a few years off or whatever and then i started i started coaching a little bit again and started traveling coaching some of the pros on the tour. Before you got to Ruzedski, like, who, where were you? I had a small little stint early on with Agassi for a little bit, and then I went. See, I didn't realize Rastagne. that. No, it was only for it was only for like a month. It was like at a weird time for Andre. You popped in with Andre for a second. Yeah, literally, literally a second, and you know he he had some stuff. <laughs> he he was not in very good shape, shall we say. He was having issues with his conditioning and stuff right at that time. And you, did you give him a talk? And say, listen, man, you got to get fit. Uh, I was trying to get him get him fit and work on, you know, his flexibility and stuff. And you know, it just didn't work for whatever reason. It didn't work. 
sometimes not everyone can yeah, listen they to have everybody. To, yeah, and maybe maybe I was describing it in the wrong way, and he had to do his own thing, so no big deal. And then I, I worked with a bunch, let's see, there was like... You said Rustanio. Rustanio, Gary Moeller I was traveling with, and then, you know, I traveled a little bit with uh, uh, Jim Grab and Richie Renenberg. Were you enjoying yourself at that moment? Or were you just trying to make money? Like, I mean, uh, it that's was, a grind what you were doing. Yeah, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I, I enjoyed working with, with the guys. I didn't want to do it full time, but. Do you, do you enjoy like making tennis players better? Uh, you know, it's fun to do that. That part of it is fun. If you have the time and you don't have to travel so much, it's just, it's such a commitment that I certainly wouldn't want to do it you got you, but you made Greg Ruzetsky. You had a, you you guys got to the finals of Grand Slam. I mean, that's no joke. Yeah, and what was that experience like? How did that ha how how did that happen? You know, he he had such a huge serve for a lefty, right? So we knew that, and he kind of had a big forehand. It was a little inconsistent, and uh, he had he struggled a little bit with his backhand to, to kind of be aggressive and just. His, his net game, which I felt I could help him with in coverage and penetrating a little bit more and just how to be more consistent and then how to close the court off. And he, he just got better. He just got better. And when you then, say, I'm sorry, I just want to, when you say close the court off, explain that. Well, it's kind of like you hit, you know, you narrow the court down so that you, you know, you know the angles on a certain ball when you approach or something. So you know where the guy's has options to hit it, you know, if you come in this area. And so you have to cover, come into net. And he was basically- Talk about positioning on the court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sir. He was a servant volleyer and he could, you know, he ended up being able to, you know, kind of rally a little bit in the backcourt and come in, or he could take a guy's second serve and come in. And to be able to move and cover the net agilely and get back to the overhead and cover and put away. So he became better in those areas. I mean- You guys had a very impressive moment. Thank you. I think, yeah, I think I got him, you know, to be competent in those areas. And he still had areas with his, uh, with his back end where he could have improved, but he at least could, you know, he could hit a passing shot. He wouldn't be able to thump it consistently. <clears throat> but anyway, he, he did well for a while and it was kind of, it was kind of ironic after we split up, which was right after he got to the finals of the Open. Well, they didn't want to pay. I don't know what it was, but he ended up getting Tony Picard. Tony Picard, Seven. long time uh, Stefan Edberg's coach. Since he was like 19, I think he was with Stefan. Stefan Edberg had this long run with Tony Picard. So hold on a second. So Rosetsky finals U.S. Open. Shut you, how, no, how does he shut you down? How does that happen? Right at that time, our contract was up, so he didn't want to renegotiate, and um, he hires Tony Picard, yeah. and then, I don't know, for a few weeks later, Tony Picard says, no, I'm not doing this with you at all, and then I think he hires Pat Cash, and Pat Cash says, no, I'm not doing this with you at all, and I don't think he had much success with, with any coaches. He disappeared. Yeah, so, I don't know, I think he was 24 at the time, just starting his run up, and. So he got to the quarters and finals with, uh, of Wimbledon and the US Open, which he'd never been to the quarterfinals of the slam before. And then we break up and he never reached the quarterfinals of the slam ever again. You know, right at this moment in time, we're seeing a lot, particularly on the women's side of coaches, uh, Kerber shut down Wim Fassett, uh, Venus got rid of Venus is not with uh oh she she's not she shut him down. When when did that happen? At the end of the last but year. They were they were together forever, Long right? Time. Um but you know 
I always maintain that Andy Roddick never played better after he he ended up he ended Brad Gilbert. I, I think yeah, I think that's safe to say. I <laughs> yeah. think that was like his he played really well during that period. But these guys they they re, they, they don't want to renegotiate contracts. They don't want to my sense is they don't want to pay. Well, you know, this is a hard part with with coaching in tennis is that I think that, you know, like if you're coaching a team, you know, you're being paid by the owner of the team. You're not being paid by the person you're coaching. And so it's, the relationship gets a little twisted. Yeah, it's it's hard to be, you know, it's like touchy feely and not necessarily what you want to tell the guy because they're paying What do you your say? Thing. You say, "Listen, man, you just made 6 million dollars. Now you got to pony up. Let's go. Let's uh, keep this going." Uh, right? Yeah, I, no, you don't say it like that. I, I don't think the discussion goes like that. And then you have, you know, on top of that. How, so how does it go? <clears throat> well, on top of, you know, I mean, you could say you want a percent, you know, possibly a percent of their winnings or something and bonuses and this or that. But, you know, then it gets into all these guys have, you know, agents and lawyers and everybody's putting their stamp on it. And then you got family pulling at them and saying, don't do this. And that. so there's a lot of people uh, in that mix. And Greg Ruzetsky never played better, okay? Without Brian Teacher, well, he, that's it, man. Well, he played well after we left for that period of time, and then he and he started slowly going down. But he never got to the quarters of a of another slam. And by the way, when you're an elite player, the slam results is what people care about. That's what you want. Well, to that's care. what every that's what every player cares about. Yeah, whether you're elite or not, everybody wants to do well in a in a major tournament. That's it. Yeah. You guys got to the final. Um, let's go move into our fourth set, okay? Oh, we're in the fourth, okay. I'm gonna change shirts now, all right, thanks. <laughs> we call this our 10-ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. It's word association. Oh, okay. Ready? Sure. On-court coaching. No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I just think, you know, tennis is a great sport the way it is, and, uh, you know, one of the great aspects of that is that you gotta think yourself and you gotta think outside of the box and figure it out, and I think that's one of... That's a great element of the sport, and I think they should leave it alone. Off-court coaching. You mean like the thing that happened like at the U.S. Open? Off-court coaching, the coaching that's going on from the box to the court. I mean, it's a fine line in a gray area. I mean, you know, I mean, what is actually coaching? You know, I mean, can they actually hear what the guy says? Oh, if he's, you know, I mean, what, you know, I just make a hand gesture. Is that a signal or what? I mean, are, you know, is the guy allowed to? I mean, obviously, it's a fine line. It's like a coach calling. It's, it's like the umpire calling a, a line call. In the judgment call, did it bounce twice or did it bounce once? I mean, and is he good at that, you know? So yeah, I mean, there are some subjective things in the sport and that's just gonna be subjective. So, I mean, you know, if the coach, if the, if the umpire, if he calls that, then nobody can argue with do it. Ever, it's do, like, do you ever tell a player, listen, don't look at me in the box, go play the match. No, but I see some of the players screaming at their coaches sometimes up there. Yeah, it's you, funny. You ever tell the tell the player, listen, stop looking at me, man. Go play. <laughs> no? No. All right. Favorite tournament? Oh, well, I loved uh, um, a Gestad was one of my favorite. Gestad. And, and just a beautiful, beautiful spot. And the food was great. The hotels were great. And I and plus, I like playing because it was on a clay court. They used, I think it was Pirelli balls out of a box. So the balls were super heavy. Pirelli tires made a tennis ball back then. <laughs> yeah, so they were out of a box. And, and so the, the clay court was fairly, like it was hard to keep it super wet because of the altitude. So you actually, you know, you think in altitude, you have to string your rackets tight, but 
actually, with those heavy balls, if you strung them tight, the ball wouldn't go anywhere. So you actually had to string it looser in the altitude because of the balls. Favorite court? Wow, favorite court. Ah, uh, Kuyong, center court. <laughs> center court, Kuyong. You play well there. I did play well there, yeah. Favorite player growing up? Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I used to uh, love to watch uh, Connors. He was one of the guys that, that I, I loved to emulate his footwork and stuff, how he, and, you know, such a fighter and how, how they moved their feet so well. Do you have a relationship with Jimmy? Uh, yeah. I mean, in a sense, do I call him up? And No, but if I saw him, we'd certainly have a conversation yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, college tennis. Uh, college tennis. I mean, I, I, I think I, I think I've been disappointed a little bit with college tennis in that um, we have too many foreigners, you know, and, and they service that that foreign element with too many scholarships. I think at least I, I don't know how it is in the last five years, but before that, it seemed like I was looking at you know some teams had like five foreigners on the team and stuff, and you know I don't think that was the the point of you know offering scholarships really to to the youth. I think it should be more about you know, trying to help, you know, the U.S. players. To clarify, there is a, a, a huge influx at one moment in time where the best international players were being recruited by the big schools, which they would never really be coming to TCU otherwise. Yeah, they wouldn't be coming to the States for, for college. They were doing it because they got offered a free scholarship where basically, you know, our kids here were just, you know, they're going to go to college and it's just where are they going to go and can they get a scholarship somewhere because they've played this game their whole whole lives and they're pretty good at it. Junior tennis. Um, I watched the U.S. Open, you know, because I was watching Nakashima and stuff and, and I was watching the kids play and I was sitting with Brad Gilbert and we were watching. And overall, we... We didn't think it was that great of a crop of kids. We were, we were, you know, like sometimes there looks like there's like a great crop where you know you could see potentially some, some world champions and stuff. And, and you're not bullish on juniors right now. The the crop of boys that I saw, I didn't think anybody's going to be a world champion of those crop of those guys that were playing. No. Wow. Um, elite player development. Elite player development. What's your opinion of how the players are being developed? Are you referring to like the USTA as, or, or do you just mean- How are we taking the top juniors to the next level? Uh, how, what's your opinion of that? Well, I think, I think that's always based on, you know, on the coaching at the, at the local level. I mean, how good is the coach and who are they working with and, you know, and, and that. And then, and then I think the USTA's jobs is to kind of hopefully supplement that, you know, and try to work with, uh, with the coach and the kid to be on the same page. And it's, it's, it's never easy. Uh, you know, I think the USTA seems to be starting to do a little better job at it, basically. Australian Open. Um, well, it's, it's, it's an exciting time and it's, it's happening right now. It's one of the last times I was down there with Rosetsky in the late 90s the weather was like like i mentioned it was got 137 on the court 137 man and, and that was with that rubberized uh deco of, turf yeah or something. yeah and it was it gets so hot so but hold on but you but you said it got so hot that the surface was even hotter than the than the than, than, than the asphalt next to it yeah yeah the surface was hotter than the asphalt for some reason it was reflective and heated up and so you'd have to uh, it was so hot, I had to move away from the actually the the, the back of the court because it was just like it was just crazy. Australian Open is boiling hot. Period. Yeah.
this is our fifth and final set, okay? Call it King of the Court. Basically, it's if you were the king of tennis, how would you do it? And what do you think you would like to change in tennis? That's a good question. I, I, I'm not so sure I'm, I'm following it closely enough to make the changes. I know this, this year that they made some interesting changes with the, with the Challenger Series and the ATP ranking, and that they're really they're just going to rank, I believe, 500 players, and that, that these $25,000 tournaments, you're, you're, it's going to be a separate ranking. So. And that's in an effort to end the gambling. Is that right? All the suckers that are 1,300 in the world taking spots in pro tournaments. I mean, I've heard rumors of that. Yeah. I don't know. It seems silly if that's really what it was because I, I, I can't. I could have it totally wrong. I mean, I'm yeah, still confused. No, I, I've heard, I've heard that, but I mean, like, like, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, how, how much gambling do you think is going to happen at a $25,000 tournament? I mean, who's putting wagers on stuff like that? And I mean, it, it wouldn't even seem like. It seems stupid for people to even like speculate on. I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't think there'd even be a market for that at that level. It's not like it's not like a such a waste of who knows even but, talking about this crap. I, I have no idea. No, but listen, I think there tennis. is. A, I think there is an element probably of but, gambling, and and it shouldn't. You know, and they should try to nip it in the bud. I just don't know if that level. But I think in general, what they're trying to do is they're actually making the tournaments put up a little bit more money, and they're making the draws deeper that they're turning the 32 draws of these 25s into 48, I think. So maybe there'll be more openings for players, but just the system is gonna be different. So I think they're gonna rank a second set of players that is not ATP ranking, so it's a system to try to move up. And I mean, it's gonna be interesting to follow to see how it, to see how it, uh, it turns out. Brian Teacher interested in the new system of rankings. Listen, man, um, 1980 Australian Open champion. It says 81 on the trophy, but, you know. Is that right? Well, because it, br it bridged the gap. It started in 80 and finished in 81. So everybody asked me, was it the 80 or 81? Well, they said, but it's the 80, but it says 81 on the trophy, so I don't know. My man, thank you so much for uh, right. talking with us. Okay. Um, My pleasure. Good luck with this situation with your... With your uh, I don't even know if good luck's the right thing. Our thoughts are with 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 you for that. I mean, that's a thank that's you. a very challenging situation. And thank you for sharing that with us as sure. well. What's the moral of the story? Day at a time, man. Just enjoy life day at a time. You never know when it's going to turn for you. So you know, you gotta you gotta get the most out of it while you can. Huge thank you to Brian Teacher. If you want to get some high level coaching, you can find him at brianteacher.com. Thank you to everyone at the Arroyo Seco Racket Club. I want to thank everyone for listening and for spreading the word. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us. You can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, our lines are open 24-7. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We will be back before you know it with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.